Podcast Network Asia. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Aisha Khanna, a co-founder and the CEO of Ado.ai. Did it, didn't I? Ado.ai. May our listeners get a little bit of your background for context. Yes, hi, it's wonderful to be here. I um, started Addo AI. It is an artificial intelligence solutions firm and incubator several years ago in Singapore. And our main focus is helping large companies organize their data. So companies are sitting on this gold mine of all the data that they've been collecting from their customer interactions, from their processes, from their infrastructure and buildings, but they don't know how to use it to improve their profitability, improve the customer experience, and even innovate with new products. So what we do is we organize all this data in a way that then we use artificial intelligence to help the companies automate, optimize, and innovate on their products. That sounds fascinating. Can you back up a little bit more and just tell me where you're from? Absolutely. So I grew up in Lahore in Pakistan. Nice. And I spent most of my childhood there. I went to college in America. So I lived in uh, Boston and then I moved to New York. I started off on Wall Street as a software engineer. And during the time that I was working, I also did my master's from Columbia University. And then I worked for a long time in um, computational finance, in uh, helping companies manage their data, organize their data better, and doing quantitative analysis for different banks and other kinds of companies. And then I decided to take a break and think about the larger implication of data and AI for society, for work, for the economy. And that's when I focused on smart cities. I went for my PhD to the London School of Economics, and I was, you know, really, really impressed by the thoughtfulness by which that was taught. And it helped me gain a very balanced perspective on technology. And so after that, we decided to move to New York, uh, to Singapore, actually. And uh, that's how I ended up in Singapore about nine years ago. And it's been a dream. It's been wonderful. It's a great place to be. And now I'm Singaporean and very committed to the country, the students, especially girls in tech, and also towards, um, you know, making the region a place where businesses can thrive. That sounds awesome. I want to give you a little bit of my background as well, and I think you'll be surprised. So my family is also, not also, but my family is originally from Boston. And okay, yeah, so I grew up in a place called Nantasket Beach. And you may or may not know this, but back in the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up, obviously, Massachusetts, very homogeneous, right? And Mm. but also a very liberal state, even though Boston itself can get a little bit tricky when it comes to this homogeneity, right? And I didn't realize, actually, when I was a kid growing up in that environment, what it was like to be different, because I didn't stick out, didn't stand out at all. And I didn't figure that out until I got to Kyoto years later and I would walk around the street and people just noticed me just because of the way I looked. Does that make sense? And it was, it was weird, right? Mm. But it was then that I kind of began to understand 
this kind of discomfort. Like nobody said anything bad to me or did anything bad, but it was just being, it was just weird sticking out in that way. And I'm presuming, right, if you're from Lahore, yes, that you must have had these experiences, even as a little girl. And I'm presuming a bunch of things here, right? But do you have any of these like early life recollections of feeling as a young girl, you know, studying all the stuff that you studied, feeling different? Does that make sense? It does. I actually really didn't because I was growing up in a very liberal, curious household. That's awesome. And and um, I think, and I didn't have many interactions. You know, we basically interacted with my family and I went to school and came back. I think that, and when I went to Harvard as an undergrad, everybody was different. Everybody was special and interesting and looked different and acted different and was experimenting with all kinds of facets of their personality. So, and New York, of course, is very similar. So I've actually always been able to find my tribe because I think it it is hard to, it is hard to feel a little different. So I did feel that in my family, when I wanted to go into programming and um, data science, there was not a lot of understanding about what it was. But instead, I found my tribe and my friends and other people who I was working with and studying with. And so that's been a really wonderful way for me to always find a community. Otherwise, I'm very social. So I think I would feel very lonely <laughs> I'm sticking out as a sore thumb in a group that didn't really, I couldn't relate to and couldn't relate to me. Even when you were studying computational finance, so when you were getting your advanced degrees, right, whether it was at getting your PhD at the LSC or mm. at Columbia, was it, were there other women that were sharing the same experience with you or were there mostly men in those classes? They were mostly men, unfortunately. I think that's changing now, but it continues to be a great disappointment to me that we don't have more women, more senior women in technology and artificial intelligence because there seems to have been some kind of bias, both you know, within academia in terms of women like doing well in school, but then dropping off in graduate school. Right. Um, and, and then obviously in the career workplace where they would even graduate top of their class in statistics or whatever subject they took, but then would move on to other subjects, management or or business analysis. And we couldn't really understand that. But the only way to understand that is, is to think about the cultural biases that we've had, that women are not as good as engineering or not as good at computer science as men. But thankfully, I see my own daughter and she is none of these, like, you know, uh, she's not carrying any of this baggage at all. Because I think it's changed so much since I was a kid or I was a student. So I'm, I'm grateful for the change, but I wish it would happen faster. But what do you think drives those sort of cultural biases? I just want to get a little bit wonky for a second, right? So and this is just in 2018. I read an article published in the Crimson entitled In Short Supply, Women in the Economics Department. This is about mm. Harvard per se, right? So Claudia yeah. Golden, who you've probably heard of, became the first tenured professor there. And that was in 1990. It was 20-something, 20 28 years before this article was published. And according to this article, the economics department at Harvard had only four other female, four female tenured professors. What was it? 28 years later. I, mean, I think one way to understand that is to look at AI and see what happened when an AI tried to recruit oh, you know, people it. from us yeah, for a position. And what happened when Amazon decided that it would use an artificial intelligence recruiting tool was that over time, the AI kept picking men for these programming jobs. And 
what we realized was that you know it wasn't that men were any better it's just that the history of the company had been such that the hr manager was always picking up men so the bias is within the humans and there has been a tendency for uh, certain companies or it can be certain individuals to keep preferring men over women for certain jobs and not making an effort for advocate for more gender diversity so when they discovered this bias they realized that the hr managers had been consistently picking up uh, men and the ai was just mimicking it like a monkey <laughs> so you know when we look at ai it actually you know we worry about biases but actually it unveils to us it unearths human biases and that helps us actually look at ourselves in a more introspective manner and so digging down to what it is i think it's just a poor habit and some individuals who need some gender diversity training <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a little bit more it's got to be a little bit more than just some gender diversity training but i do agree with you right in other words if humans are writing the artificial intelligence algorithms and if they're sort of training the machine learning stuff as well it's going to have embedded biases for sure. I guess the real question for me is, how do you go out into society and change those biases just based on your own experience? The way that I have done it is by doing a lot of work in education and girls in STEM, girls in tech. Mm -hmm. I really believe that at the end of the day, it's about showing that the minority, whichever one it may be, that's been historically discriminated against, is as good that it just needs equal opportunity it, there's, there's no preferential treatment that anybody's asking for and for that for women to ask for that equal opportunity they need to skill up and they need to be very competent and articulate and they need to be confident and the way to be confident is to be educated and have role models and so i've been started a charity called 21st century girls right. and a lot of what we do is teach girls coding and ai in in singapore precisely to create a longer and larger pipeline of women who are interested in stem and what do you see so again according to another study that i was reading funded by the government of canada right and published in coordination mm -hmm. with the oecd so the organization for economic cooperation and development it it says that limited access to capital and credit right which is often linked to gender inequality in property and land rights which surprised me actually that that was why right in other words if you don't have collateral it's hard to borrow money how does this sort of filter into the venture capital world do you think it does and it doesn't i mean we 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 see that it's always been a case that women are not as funded by vcs as men this is very similar bias but the reason that women did not have access to capital traditionally was because they were not working um so that's a, there was a you know if you go to developing countries like bangladesh or pakistan they did not they were not part of the formal economy and that okay. is the reason why because they had no transaction history that they would have no access to capital and grameen bank and the microfinance banks like that said no that's okay we will still take a risk even though you have no education no job no employment reference letter no bank account and we'll give you a loan and we'll have this peer to peer monitoring model for ensuring that your credit risk is lower that worked extremely well here we have the another very perplexing problem uh, which is that they're highly educated they come from 
very good educational backgrounds. Often they have had careers, they have access to capital, they have they have access to bank accounts. There is nothing to say that it's a higher risk. So then you think, well, then what is it? What right. is making you feel that you can't invest in a woman? Is it because you think she's going to have kids and not be focused? Is it because you think she can't handle a large team of men? Is it because you think she's not technically savvy enough to understand the product that she's building? Uh, this is this is these are just some of the things that I think people think in private but don't tell women in public. Right, um, and it's terrible and very unfair. And you know, there's a lot of movement to to stop this basically. But how do you answer those questions, right? In other words, I worked with a ton of women, both at Morgan Stanley and at Goldman Sachs. Mm who just killed it constantly, regardless of what their marital status was. And frankly, regardless yeah. of whether they were having children as well. Like, yeah. how do you take people who haven't had that experience and inform them? I don't like to say educate because that's a different metric, but how do you inform them that these biases that they have can be wrong? There are only one way for a person to truly realize that, and that's by experiencing it. And the only way to experiencing it experience it is if the leadership at the board level and at the executive level mandates that you and very actively advocate and reaches out for gender gender diversity, gender equality. And as more women are hired, men are and other women are, are more exposed to the fact that regardless of their home situation, uh, men and women can be equally competent in the job. And I think that, uh, you know, kind of seeing is believing. That's one thing. The other is role models. The more women that are successful, the more women that are IPOing their companies at the New York Stock Exchange, the more vocal women are in terms of the girls' network. We have a girls' club now and helping each other. And that also changes the perception of men and very significantly. So those two things, it's a mixture of bold leadership and women who are coming out, like actively supporting each other, helping each other and being visible, that also is a very strong signaling for the economy. So you do this thing you said called 21C, so 21st century, right? Yes. To sort of help girls with all of STEM, right? Not just coding, but the entire sort of infrastructure of STEM. What do you expect? Um, it's actually only for artificial intelligence only for and AI. coding. Fair enough. Yes, at the moment. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> it's ambitious enough. What, yes. what is, what's your expectation for the output of that program? In other words, you talked about creating a longer pipeline. If you mm -hmm. create the pipeline, what's the end of that pipeline in your expectation? Well, there are two outcomes that one can have from a program like this. It's a 10-week program. One outcome is that the girls are now more confident of being in any job um, and encountering AI and data and technologists, and they can sit in a room together and brainstorm with them. They don't need to shy away or shrink back in their chair because they feel they don't understand logically what that person is saying when he's using these technologies. The second is that some small percent of them then really fall in love with the subject and decide that they actually want to specialize in that. And then they become the data engineers and data scientists in that group. Um, and so we've had both this of these things happen. Some girls have gone on and actually switched their major. And they were even covered by the national newspapers because they spoke very articulately about the fact that nobody encouraged them to go into computer science, but then they took this course, fell in love, switched their major, and now have ideas of what they want to do with their career. 
And then there are lots of other girls who, when we take a survey before the course starts, say that they don't want to be data scientists, but they're very intimidated by, you know, their prospects, about this new field and how, and afraid of their prospects in a world where AI is so important for developing any kind of business. So they say after this, they feel so much better. Well, it's doable. They kind of understand it. And literally, we make them code. We make them do the statistics because the fear factor is much bigger than, you know, their ability to to work with AI engineers. Yeah. I mean, for my money, it's just like riding a roller coaster, right? But before you get on, you have all these butterflies in your stomach. And by the time you ride it and get off, you feel like, when can I do that again? Yes, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> is that kind of a fair analogy? <laughs> it is kind of a, yes, it's a very good analogy. Actually, so, <laughs> You can use that, by the way, for free without attribution. <laughs> Do you want to know how I collaborate with some of the best brands in the world at Asia Tech Podcast? I use Podmetrics. This is the best way to connect to your favorite brands and monetize your podcast. If you are a podcaster, you can sign up now at podmetrics.co and use the referral code Asia Tech Podcast, all one word, to get full control of your show's monetization, regardless of your show's size. And if you're a brand, and want to collaborate with the Asia Tech Podcast, head over to advertiser.podmetrics.co, it's spelled like it sounds, and sign up now. When you talk about role models, right? When I was growing up, there were role models all around me. And even when I got to Morgan Stanley, I could see John Mack and all these other people that were my natural role models. But I didn't have to be kind of proactive about it and they didn't have to be proactive either. Are you suggesting today that in the programs that you run, whether it's 21C or whether it's girls in tech, that there needs to be this sort of proactive role modeling, at least for now? Like how are you using these role models in the context of the stuff that you're trying to accomplish? The way that we do it is just identifying them and then talking about them to the girls because they may not know them already. They may not know. And by the way, it's not only me, there are many other charitable organizations doing that. And there are many other, even the Singapore government has something called SG Women 100, where they take the top 100 women in tech every year and they celebrate them. And these women are women you can look up and they're in different industries. It's very cool for the girls to kind of see, oh, this one's in fashion, but this one's in retail, this one's in manufacturing, wherever their interest may lie, they can see somebody in tech who's really been giving it their best and and gotten to the top of their industry. Uh, Just collating this hundreds of thousands of women is in itself a very important activity and should be done because otherwise there's still so few amongst the millions that you would miss them or you wouldn't know of them. So the girls are inundated daily by so many role models that are men that having these women then in one place is super exciting for them. And they really respond to it, especially if they're they're the younger entrepreneurs, they are very inspiring to the students. Yeah. I mean, particularly in Singapore, if you look at some of the earliest and most famous startup tech success stories, a few of them were women and were very kind of prominent actually at the time. This I'm talking about back in 2011 and 2012. And even yeah. women like Anna Gong now, right? Who wrongs Perks is yes. very prominent. Oh, yeah. She's fantastic. She's phenomenal. I've had her on the show yeah. actually a while ago. We'll have her back as well. But it's women like that, that, you know, they're just out there doing great stuff that people can see. And I think that that's really important. Yeah. 
That is very important. I think that is really the key is, and this shows like you, right? Where you have somebody like Anna, who's a huge inspiration to me as well. And when people listen to her, they're, oh, I can do that too. And we don't realize it because we're older. But when you're young, that makes a lot of difference. <laughs> I'm, I'm much older than you are by far, by the way. But I, <laughs> but I remember, actually. I do remember that feeling. But I remember, seriously, when I walked into the boardroom at Morgan Stanley when I had just been hired and sat next to John yeah. Mack, who was 10 right. or 15 years older than I was, and just thinking, mm-hmm. that's what I want to be. Yes, He was exactly, right there and right? he was accessible and it was really great. Yes. And I think we need the same thing. I'm going to say for girls, I know that I should say in most cases, women or young ladies, but in this case, the younger you, no, but I think it's important, right? The younger you start, the better. I have a daughter as well, but you have to start when they're girls. Yeah. I, I really agree with you. I think we have to start at a very early age and that, uh, that is something we miss out on because we, these kind of gender roles can happen very early on, you know, with Barbies and all of that kind of stuff. And it's all changing now, thank God. But it's only for the progressive parents who are plugged in that are, there's a role for the parent to play, basically. You you can't just leave it to society or to the schools. We have to kind of actively, actively showcase those models to our girls and, and also point them out wherever we see them. You know, sometimes I'll go to a bakery or I'll go to a, a psych bicycle shop and there'll be a woman who's the owner and I'll always tell both my son and my daughter, isn't that great? You know, yeah. like look at her. And I think that's, uh, they, they believe they, and they, when they're that young, it's so normal for them. Yeah. You know? And that's how they grow up, which is great. Right. But there's, and we used to say this actually about Japanese guys who would go to the United States, they would come back much more liberal. And yet when they joined yeah. and much more progressive, but when they joined the big established companies, most of uh, their colleagues would be men and they would be yes. kind of reverse brainwashed back into believing that, you know, there were gender rules and that if they didn't follow those rules, they would not get promoted or they would not get a raise. And that was how that society went well, backwards yeah. from, because I think there's a real tug of war, at least in my experience, between like being progressive, which a lot of people believe is true, but the establishment, mm. however you define it, says, don't want to go there yet because we have a vested interest in maintaining our position. Is that fair? Yeah, I do think things are changing, though. I mean, I really feel it. You know, uh, I think that there's a real zeitgeist on so. with women and, and girls kind of taking up and, and women standing up for themselves. Like I always say, there always used to be a boys club. Now there's a girls club. I reach out to my, I'm on all these WhatsApp groups and all of this where, where they're women, you know, of different interests of different ages. And we really help each other, not just have, you know, tea and sandwiches, but like literally help each other Stop with business it. ideas and business. And that is really cool. I think that's, uh, that's something that a lot of people super enjoy as they grow older. I want to, I want to talk about these networks that you that you've just mentioned, right? Because I do, mm. do believe they're really important and let's get back to the core of this, right? According to HSBC's She's Business Research, 70% of female entrepreneurs cite, in quotes, building a network is one of the biggest challenges in developing and growing their own business. And why is it so different? I know you said that there's a zeitgeist out there and it's changing and hopefully that's Mm. happening. But why is it so difficult for female entrepreneurs to build these networks and kind of what needs to change to remove that barrier? I think it's just, first of all, it's just the, the nature of being an entrepreneur it's a very roller coaster, lonely ride sometimes. Oh my God, sometimes. And yeah, exactly. Oh right? It's like every day. Every yeah. day. So I think, you know, you can't conflate that issue with the fact that 
you're a woman trying to build a network. You're trying to run a business, plus you're trying to build a network full stop, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman. Then you're trying to build a network of like-minded women. So they may be women entrepreneurs. And there's you just have to literally look at your local business chapter. Uh, But then sometimes you feel, well, I want women techies, or I want women data scientists, or I want women in, um, in fashion. And that, then the pool becomes a little smaller, but I would say it's probably as small for men as well often. But for any big industry, whether it's financial services or manufacturing or retail, you will find business associations that have a women's chapter in them. Like even Singapore's Computer Society, they are Mm -hmm. uh, responsible for the Singapore Women in Tech. And I can always go to them, talk to them about these things. A lot of women who lead, who are on the leadership there. So it requires a bit of proactivity and that proactivity takes time and time is not something most entrepreneurs have. So what would be, what would be good is if once you became, you know, an entrepreneur, there was easy to get on these groups. Now it's becoming a bit easier because it's becoming more informal. They used to have to be meetups. They used to have to be business councils or, but now they're WhatsApp groups. And I would say, just start your own one, you know, just reach out. There's, I mean, two days ago, somebody reached out to me over LinkedIn and we had a fantastic conversation about her startup. Um, she was just confident enough to reach out. And I think that I'm trying to grow my company. I hear no every single day, but for that one <laughs> yes that I hear every once in a while, it's totally worth it. So I would say the best way to build a network is to go out and like reach out to people. So two things. One, you have to introduce me to this woman that reached out to you so I can get her on the show. And the second thing is, <laughs> I want to be very explicit about this, this life of being an entrepreneur as well for men, mm. men and women. Yes. <laughs> I think you can get really depressed and elated actually within the same five minutes. And I think it's yes. a constant slog. You know this from building your own company. And I know it from coming out of a 20-something year experience just working at big corporates and then trying to start something on your own. Like, you know, when you're at Goldman Sachs, if you're doing well, because you get a raise, you get a review and it's like pretty obvious whether you're doing well or not. But when you're building something from zero on a day-to-day basis, you kind of have no idea. Yep. Do you know what I mean? It's really, really hard to be an entrepreneur. It's not everybody's cup of tea and it doesn't have to be. No. I think we shouldn't glorify it. It actually is a personality type that gravitates towards it. 99%, 99.9% of uh, us entrepreneurs uh, don't, you know, have multi-billion dollar IPOs and that's okay. Mm-hmm. We do it because we, there, even though it's hard, there are things about it that we like. And I know so many women who are so successful. I'm a huge admirer of them at very big companies. And it's hard for them. The politics is hard. Everything is hard. You know, the, the meeting the KPIs is hard, but they love it. So I think that I, I, I really appreciate anybody who gives it their best. And because it's the grass seems greener on the other side, but it, it really isn't. It, either Either way, I think it's hard. And yeah. um it's important to have reasonable expectations from where from from where you can go in what amount of time. So you might reach there, but it takes longer than you think usually. Absolutely. Look, one of the things I like to say is the world needs great, great uh, generals and great soldiers. And I don't think there's any nobility yes. in either one of them, to be fair. It's just what you're aligned for, right? Or set up for personally. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So the last thing I'll ask you is just about the pandemic. It's just hard to get away from yeah. it. But from your perspective, and I come out again, the episode that I released this week, talked to a team at Microsoft who did an entire report on hybrid work. And one of the things that they found was that the pandemic impacted female and female entrepreneurs more than it has men. Do you, from your experience, not you personally, but just from the conversations that you have, do you feel like working from home has forced women to reassume some of the sort of caregiving responsibilities more so than men? Well, it seems to have been the case in many countries, and there's a lot of there are a lot of reports on this as well, especially in the U.S. Uh, they have been quite vocal about highlighting the fact that women have had more to do. I think that it varies depending on the relationship you have with your partner and whether and the jobs that both of you have. Sure. So it's it's a function of a lot of those things. I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is highlight this invisible work that women do all the time at home. Uh, because they're doing more of it and they, you know, it's almost like they had accepted a certain amount as just being normal. Right. But then with all the pressures and the Zoom calls and everything else, it, it, it's, it's been highlighted that it's much more for some of the women. I think maybe the majority of them. And I think that it's important to have a space where they can just express themselves and, and to have some kind of a uh, more awareness by men also about how they should share their responsibilities in the home. It tends to happen in some countries more than others. I was quite surprised in the U.S. I, I would have thought uh, that's what I've been reading. This is a part of large part of my family still there. My in-laws right. are there. But I think that I don't know about Europe as much or, or if it's been the same or not. But I think that that's certainly been something that has been highlighted and should be taken very seriously. For me, I think personally, I think it's very important for a woman, whether she's in the pandemic or not in the pandemic, to have some space to herself, to be mental space, can be a little corner in the house and have some time and silence. And that silence is both internal and external um, to be still and to think strategically about one's life. Uh, you know, in terms of whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're a mother or a wife or a daughter or just a citizen, we don't take that time out um, to do that. For me, the pandemic forced me to take that time out and um, participate in campaigns such as, you know, HSBC Jade's um, campaign for women entrepreneurs to do more with 21st century girls, to just try to slow down and think more strategically about maybe some courses I want to take, some more time I want to spend with my kids. It's not possible. Even when you were asking me earlier, uh, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and, and every day you, you feel harassed by life, then it's very difficult to reach out and network and be part of a network where you're giving end on the receiving end right. because you're just because stressed. Um, so I think that what we need is tools to manage our stress better, basically. Do you feel like, like emotional the, wellness, basically, I yeah, think is very, very important. So do you feel like one of the things that's come out of this pandemic is a more heightened awareness of the importance of mental health and yes. treating it as something that should be less stigmatized and more accepted as just normal? Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Mental health is as important as physical health. And silence is as important as like intellectual, like buck buck, you know, like it really like we need to calm our thoughts and calm our mind. And nice. for some reason, they're 
very well-known tools for doing that. Just like by taking longer exhales, it's it's the cheapest you know, way to like <laughs> immediately de-stress. But we never do it. We never think of it. We just read about it. I think that these things are very, very important. I wish I had known some of them earlier. I wish I had taken this step earlier to carve out this space for myself. Yeah, I think it's super important. Sometimes I have to explain to people that I'm not ignoring them. I'm just thinking, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, there's somebody mowing grass <laughs> behind me. That's okay. I hope you kind of... No, it's okay. Yes. I always I always say if there's not a dog barking in the background or a baby crying, it's not a podcast. In this case, there it's somebody mowing go. the lawn, right? So it's perfect. Yes. Now we know it's official. <laughs> yes, I, I think that I totally know what you mean. And this is the single most difficult thing that women, especially because they're mothers, they're in the house, or if, even if they're not mothers, they, we are. We have been taught to, th- there's this ideal that, oh, women are good multitaskers. And that's very wrong. Nobody should be multitasking, full stop. I believe that it's really the wrong thing to do. We should slow down, yeah. take things one by one and be completely present. But I, for a long time, you know, was used to hear, oh, you're so good at it. All women are such good multitaskers. And was encouraged to be a multitasker, whereas that's not healthy and not productive either. So I think there's some misconceptions that we need to remove. That's very important. I could not agree with you more. Look, I've, I feel like this has been a really great conversation. I've learned a lot. I want to let you go. But before I do that, I'd like you, I'd like to ask you for the favor of introducing me to more of these female entrepreneurs that you know, even the people that are involved in the girls in tech and some of the other people that are involved in 21C so that I can get them on the show to get their perspective as well. That would be amazing. I would be happy to do that. I mean, this is this is so great that you have this forum and you're encouraging women to talk about themselves and you know not just about their successes, but just as you had told me earlier, we're really digging deep into what matters to them. Mm. And you know, we're all grappling with expectations uh, that we have ourselves and, and society has, or demons that we're grappling with. And we really should try to be honest and open so that everybody can, you know, enjoy each other's kind of lessons learned. Yeah. Look, I think the conversations are really important because until it gets normalized, until people have these conversations, like you said, they're only going to learn from their own experiences. You can stand up in front of a whiteboard or a blackboard and just write stuff down, but you can't really feel it until you feel it personally. Yes. And, you know, definitely the resources, the funding, the network of mentors, all of these things, uh, you know, there are, I would really like to say there are opportunities for women out there to go and find them. You can go to meetups, you can go to 21st Century Girls, you can go to HSBJ, HSBCJ program. Um, there are lots of opportunities for women if they just are interested and proactively seek them. Exactly. Let's make sure that more people find that out. Okay. I really want to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Aisha Khanna, a co-founder and CEO of Dr. Adho AI. This was awesome for me. Hopefully you enjoyed it as well. It was great. Thank you so much. Take care.
The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Thank you.